was a little concerned when he mentioned about uh, um, sitting back for the next hour and a half, and I was um, intending to preach a little less than that. So uh, I hope that's okay with everybody. You might be cheering. Um, so let's go to Matthew chapter 19. I'd like to uh, just touch on um, a thought today about uh, the courage of our convictions. And um, there's a, a passage here about um, something that maybe brings it out a little bit. And I, uh, just from a, a natural perspective, uh, I don't know if there's any people here that have um, enjoyed, if I can put it that way, uh, bungee jumping. Um, I can't put enjoy and bungee jumping in the same sentence, um, but some people maybe can. I can't put enjoy skydiving in the same sentence either, uh, yet I'm sure some people can. Uh, I would imagine if you go into either of those things, you definitely have the courage of your convictions uh, that this is going to come off okay. Um, and um, <laughs> I remember seeing a, uh, a sign once uh, uh, outside of a hotel. It was just sort of posted up and it uh, was advertising... Um, a parachute uh, that hadn't been uh, used at all. It obviously hadn't opened and uh, <clears throat> it was a, somebody's idea of sense of humour. Um, and that's my thinking when it comes to parachutes and bungee jumping. I look at the technical side of it and I think that is not going to save me. <laughs> that is not going to keep me safe so I won't do it. Um, but let's have a little look here uh, at this story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, and um, just uh, picking it up um, in um, verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, it's a good question. How am I going to go to heaven? Who will go to heaven? What is required to go to heaven? Good question. Verse 18, he said to him, um, sorry, verse 17, and he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said unto him, Which? And Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt uh, not commit adultery, uh, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honour thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. And the young man saith unto him, All these have I kept from my youth up? I've done them. Not many people might be able to say that, but um, he said, I've done it. He said, so what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly or, or rarely um, enter into the kingdom of God, uh, kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now he's painting a picture of something you know, that looks impossible. A camel going through the eye of a needle. Um, and in verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed and saying, who then 
can be saved. If this guy can't be saved, who has done his best with the Ten Commandments and uh, to and to live an honourable life and uh, before God and before his neighbour, then um, who can be saved? In verse 26, But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, as I say, the point I'd like to bring out of this story is that while the young man had good intentions, when it was put in front of him as to what he needed to do to get into the kingdom of heaven and this one thing that was required of him, he didn't have the courage of his convictions. He was, he was full of good ideas, he was full of good effort, but when the moment came like me with a bungee jump, when the moment came, it wasn't going to happen. It could have happened, but it didn't happen. And so often we see this happen where people get so close and yet so far. I remember uh, somebody years ago that uh, we knew, uh, Kathy and I knew through our children at school, and the parents were just so taken with the gospel that they came here with eyes wide open. And the lady went for prayer just over there. And as she prayed, something started to happen as though, you know, her tongue was about to sort of break loose and speak in tongues. And she frightened and she bolted out of that door and we could never bring the subject up with her again. It was just done, finished. She got so close to what the kingdom of God was about, but she went, "Uh uh-oh, too close. I can't do it. So then, who can be saved? Let's have a look at a couple of other examples in uh, Luke chapter 7. Now, perhaps uh, it's hard to categorize people, but I I, I want to just look at maybe just some types of people and how uh, they have approached the Lord. And uh, so we read here in verse 1, um, and when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. Now, this sort of falls into a similar category to the rich young ruler. We've got a, a man here in some position of authority and he has concentrated on doing good things. And so people say, there's none quite like him. You know, surely he deserves something special. In verse 6, then Jesus went with them and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. So he had a different view of himself than others had of him. He didn't think he was worthy. Verse 7, Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. And I, For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say to one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him 
and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. And this is a guy that's used to being in charge. And he explains that. That when I give orders, people do as they're required to do. But in this particular case, he had no authority or no power to do anything about his sick servant. It was out of his league. But by faith, the key factor, he recognised the one who had authority. And as a centurion, I suppose, to meet uh, Jesus, who was not a person of any authority whatsoever, just a, a person who was uh, from Nazareth that some mocked and others thought was great and uh, dressed in his civvies, um, Jesus just walking amongst people. And here's the centurion in his official position. And somehow he realises that he needs to submit to the words and the authority of this man. And it's his faith that allows him to do that, something that perhaps he would never submit to a civilian normally. He would be in, it would have to be a person who was uh, given authority, given position. But by his faith, it happens. And so he acts on that faith, regardless of what anybody else might think, and talk him down and say, is this risking your position? Regardless of what anybody else thought, I'm going to that man and I will put my trust in that man. And Jesus is so impressed with the, the one thing that probably could have tested this man was whether he would be submissive and yet he was prepared to be and to maybe even risk his own name. And we don't know much about him. The, um, the soldiers in the Roman army came from all around the empire he could have been African. They did have um, African soldiers. They had African leaders amongst their soldiers, uh, according to history. He could have been uh, uh, Arabic, could have been European, could have been from any part of the empire. So here's a man who has risen to this position and, uh, and then allowed himself to be humble before Jesus Christ took a bit of action. Let's go to verse 36. Now, this is probably a different scenario to quite a degree. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner. Now, this is her description. This is her entry into the Bible. This woman, which was a sinner. And we don't know what it was, but she's got a tag. And um, perhaps she is a troubled person. I'm sure she was for some reason. If that's her title then whether it was uh, by her own doing or whether it was her reaction to abuse or whatever, that here is a woman that is uh, not in the best position in life. And when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster box of ointment, something quite valuable, expensive, and she stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, I don't know if, you know, again, we don't know a lot about her life, but here is a woman who 
has some sort of tag that says that she is not a person to mix with. She is the, the last person you're going to invite uh, for lunch. And yet she sees in Jesus uh, a chance. And she, so she does something which people would think, some people might think, what sort of behaviour is that? To go and go to his feet and to, to pour this ointment there in a way that, you know, who would do something like that? But maybe she is at a point in her life where she doesn't care what anybody else thinks because uh, she's already had all the names thrown at her. But this is her chance to turn all that uh, on its head, at least between her and God. Whether she could change it with other people, she might not have known, but she was she recognised the Son of God and that I can get it right with him. So I won't go through the whole story, but she, she ends up at the house as a Pharisee and he judges her. And And on this occasion, she has one judge greater than the religious leader because the Son of God is there. And he doesn't judge her. He actually comes uh, with a, a very different approach to what she probably normally would have received. And um, so down in verse uh, 44, he turned to the woman after he's heard the accusation by the Pharisee and said to Simon the Pharisee, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house. You gave me no water for my feet. So he's picking on his hospitality now. But she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss. You weren't welcoming. But this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you didn't anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said to her, Thy sins are forgiven. I reckon that would have been music to her ears. She probably never ever heard that before. Your sins are forgiven. Everything that has ever happened to you, what you did of your own accord, what others did to you and how you felt bad about it, whatever it was, it is gone. The Bible says it's like they are thrown into the sea. Gone. You know what we do with pollution? <laughs> Chuck it into the bottom of the ocean. Probably pay for it one day but with our sins never to be seen again. And um, in verse 49, And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. This word saved here is a Greek word, sozo, and it, it really it means exactly what it says. It has saved her. It's made her whole before God. Now this is um, this is sort of prime time of the Old Testament, if I can put it that way. This is this is the Old Testament at its best, uh, because people under the Old Testament were trying to follow the Ten Commandments and they constantly fell. But some of them saw that what God was really after was that people would love Him and believe in Him. And when Jesus came, He made that so clear to them. But in a sense, this is, this is the great, even though this is in your Bible, it's the New Testament. Jesus hasn't died yet. So this is still the Old Testament. The, it's, the, the Old Covenant isn't finished. So this is prime time of the Old Testament where Jesus is inspiring people to have faith. 
And here is a woman who does just that. And, 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 and the centurion that we've just seen. And he has shown to everybody that these people who have the courage of their convictions are outstanding in the Old Testament. Let's go to another one, uh, chapter 19. So this time I want to have a bit of a look at somebody. So we looked at somebody who the community thought was good. We've looked at somebody who the community um, thought was bad and I'd like to think that maybe um, maybe it wasn't all her own doing. I'm only guessing. Um, but we've got here a bad one where it is all his own doing. And in verse 1, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a, a man named Zacchaeus, which uh, was the chief amongst the tax collectors, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus who he was and could not for the the, the press uh, because he was little of stature. So it, was, uh, it wasn't the paparazzi, it was the, um, the crowd, the press, the word for the, the people, the pressure is probably a better way of putting it. So in verse 4, and he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And so Jesus calls him and, and says, I'd like to come to your house. And they sit in the house together. And uh, in verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Now, what the rich young ruler couldn't do, who was a good man, we've now got a crook, and he says, I've got to own up. I've got to own up to what I've done. And he says, oh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live by this. This is my moment. To not only say, I want to follow God, but I want my life to change. And in verse 9, And Jesus said to him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. Now, to be a son of Abraham is just a nice way of saying you're a son of faith. You're a person who has really grabbed hold. And verse 10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Zacchaeus here, has moved away from all his friends, the tax collectors, and in a way, as he makes his move, he makes them look guilty because he's owned up to his crooked methods and the others are probably saying, don't do it. You'll put us all under the spotlight. But he's decided, between me and God, I've got to get this right. And uh, and he is... He is um, praised by Jesus for it. Let's go to Mark 10, last example. So this category, we'll look at somebody who um, has had things happen in their life um, to their health that has really made their life hard going. And a lot of people are in that category. And in verse 46 and they came to Jericho, and he went out of Jericho with his disciples uh, and a great number of people. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. 
And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace, but he cried the more a great deal, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Now we've got somebody here where I reckon he's got nothing to lose. Nothing at all to lose. It's, it's, it's just worth it. What's life like? And, and, and if I shout out, well, I can't get any more, I can't get any lower than I am. Um, people are already uh, perhaps dismissive of me. Verse 49, And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. I love this verse because this is the courage of his convictions. This isn't him coming, going, for. I hope I've got a chance here today. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. This is him with an expectation. I've heard and now I'm going to see. And so as he walks towards Jesus, the clothing that he wears as a beggar, maybe with a sign painted on it, he goes, done with that, here I go. And in verse 51, and Jesus answered and said to him, what wilt thou that I should do to thee? I love this question. It's fairly obvious that Jesus wants him to say it, to say what is really on his heart, what he believes. And the blind man said to him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. I've been waiting for this moment and I believe it's going to happen. And Jesus said to him, Go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. And I think there's two parts to this. Firstly, that his faith has saved him as a person between him and God. And the result of it was that he got a healing. I was with uh, our brother John Irwin the other day, who some of you will know. John uh, is about 85 now. Um, going on 65, as John always is, for those who know him. Um, he's uh, always been a very enthusiastic uh, uh, ex-sailor from the British Navy. And um, he had a picture up on the wall that I, I hadn't noticed before, and it's John wearing glasses. And he doesn't wear them, hasn't worn them for a long time. And one time he came out to the prayer line for prayer because of his headaches, um, but um, he was praying with Pastor John who encouraged him to pray for more than that. And he ended up, uh, the next time he went to the optometrist, um, the optometrist asked him to read the various lines that were in front of him, and uh, he read it. And the optometrist said to him, you failed. He said, what do you mean? He said, you don't need any glasses. And that was the end of his glasses. Um when we come to the Lord believing, all things are possible. Let's go to Hebrews and chapter 10. I'd like to just have a look at a little passage here that takes us from those very good things we've seen, but they were isolated events in the Old Testament. There was many of them in Jesus' time. But Jesus wanted to bring in a way where the whole world, not just the Roman Empire, 
not just Judea where he was, but the whole world would be able to taste of the hand of God. And so it was going to be a different system that he brought in. And in chapter 10, verse 11, it says, And every priest standeth daily ministering and often uh, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now, a lot of churches today still operate with a priest, with people confessing their sins, da-da-da-da-da-da. And the Bible teaches us that that method doesn't work. It's very clear in a number of places, it just does not work. Go into the priest, he asks you what you've done, my son, my daughter, asks you to go away and pray some prayers and, and, um, and people religiously follow these procedures in different religions all over the world in the hope that somehow or other they are forgiven and that things will be better for them. Now this scripture says it doesn't work because the change needs to come within. It's not what the priest does for you. The change needs to come from within. And in verse 12, But this man, and it's referring here to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and that was his life when he died on the cross, one, so we just think about it again, he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, for all the sins before the cross, for all the sins after the cross, for all the sins in our life, once offered, never to be offered again, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. And we've got to discover who these sanctified people are that are perfected. In verse 15, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. Now we speak of the Holy Ghost all the time. Why? Because when the Holy Ghost came to us, we knew we were forgiven. We knew we were sanctified. We were made holy. And our old habits dropped off. And we found ourselves didn't want to drink anymore, didn't want to smoke anymore, didn't want to be immoral anymore, didn't want to whatever wanted to serve the Lord. Why? Because the Holy Ghost was a witness to us of the message of Jesus Christ. It came into us. And it goes to describe it here in verse 16. This is the covenant or the agreement that I'll make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities Will I remember no more? Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And it all changes because something is now written upon our heart. And and I'm sure there are many people here that um, might have gone to a church and tried to obey the rules of the Bible. I can see enough people here, but it's a bit dark up the back. How many people here used to go to a church of some sort, some other church? There's quite a few in the crowd. And would have tried, and if we were honest with ourselves, we failed. And and then we heard the gospel and received the Holy Ghost and all the things we might have been hoping for, all of a sudden it comes, bang, bang, bang. And, and things are healed in us. And that was God's intention. 
So let's just look in Acts chapter 2 as to how that first happened. For anybody who's visiting here today and hasn't seen this, the question that was asked by the disciples was, who then can be saved? Well, we've seen that Jesus is the one who provides the salvation. But we've also seen that it needs belief and it needs action upon your belief, the courage of your convictions. And we want to persuade you today to believe, but then also to act upon it. So in Acts chapter 2 here, and when the day of Pentecost, verse 1, was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting, 120 praying together. That was all that was left of all the people that had followed Jesus, just 120. And in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and their hearts and their minds were changed. It doesn't say that, but the scriptures say it elsewhere. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit made them speak. And and from here, we've got the New Testament starting, the new agreement, and with great boldness, they start to live new lives, different lives to the lives that they lived before. And like the people we have just been reading of, good people were here that needed humbling. Bad people were here that needed to admit their wrongs. Um, Troubled people who were broken were here that needed to be lifted. Sick people were here that needed to know that they could be healed. And the New Testament starts like this with the disciples being filled with the Holy Ghost And in the same way that Jesus spoke to all the different types of people, the disciples started to do the same thing. And in verse 37 we'll read that on this day as Peter preaches to the crowd, and when they heard this they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So, verse 37, we've got conviction. A pricked in their heart. It has got through. We've, we've pulled down the Son of God. And today, we've seen these miracles happen of what's happened to all these people and, and and it's blown us away and it's convicted us. Is there really a God? Is it is it not in the religion that I grew up with? Is it not in the the ideas that I had and the things that I pursued? Is there really a God? As we heard earlier today, is there really a place like this where the truth can be found? And And these people on this day are dealing with that conviction. And then the question is, Have they got the courage of their convictions? What do I do next? And Peter says, there's something you need to do. Come and get baptised. Will you do it? If you really have that conviction, will you come and say, I want to bury my old person in the waters of baptism? And will I reach out in faith 
to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost that might change me? What will my friends think? What will my husband think? What will my wife think? You know, and all those things sort of start to go through our minds and, and, um, sometimes that might be quite a challenge, sometimes less of a challenge. I was uh, hearing Pastor David Chalmers testimony at Elizabeth last Sunday and uh, Sue and David were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time when Sue came along and uh, she was um, trying to persuade her boyfriend um, about coming along and he wasn't the slightest bit interested and he describes how he thought that sneaking into the Vogue and sitting up the back there that nobody would notice him and uh, maybe that God wouldn't even notice him but he started to get a bit convicted by it all and Sue didn't even know that he was sneaking in, sneaking out, just having a bit of a look at what she was involved in. And then one day, um, to her surprise, he lined up to be baptised. And uh, what a uh, uh, an easier battle, I guess, uh, for her than she thought it might have been. Doesn't always go that way. Sometimes it's a hard battle. We have a, a sister down at Woodcroft, Marilyn Scrutton, who has held her ground walking in the Lord for 29 years. And eventually her husband started to come to the meetings. Um, he's an engineer, he's a thinker, and uh, couldn't see his way into any of these things. For two years he came to our meetings after 27 years of her coming along. For two years he was in and out of our meetings, didn't want to do anything. And then one of our working bees down at camp, he decided to come and join in the working bee, like the practical side of life. And uh, working bees uh, can be a great outreach for the gospel, it seems. And uh, he was down there and he came up and he asked to be baptised. And his wife was, uh, again, incredibly surprised. And she hadn't had to fight anything but she did have to stand for what she believed all that time and she just held on to it and didn't move. And now we have husband, wife, son, daughter and another daughter starting to have a look at it and praise the Lord. So here this day, these people had to decide what will I stand for? The offer is being made, what will I stand for? My wife, when uh, she first came along, was all of 20 years old, just a spring chicken, happy young girl, um, apart from the fact that her boyfriend was a lame duck, that's me, um, and we were trying to repair that, and um, when we heard the gospel, it uh, it just brought us both hope, and and it just changed everything, I mean... We're now married for 44 years. Everything uh, turned around in a big way. But I remember at the time that her family that she loved just did not want her to come along. They resisted it and in, in every way possible. And she had to decide, what am I going to do? Do I do what God is telling me? Do I help them by me being strong? Or do I compromise and give in to what they want. And she decided to continue on. And she's seen so much blessing in her life as a result of that. Um, and and I'm just personally so glad 
that that's what she was prepared to do and that she had the courage of her convictions. In verse 39 it says, The promise is to you and your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call them. With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward, this crooked generation. What will you do to save yourself, to to um, to find what really is valuable in life? Our brother Shutan, who was uh, leading the work in China, was riding his bike around the world and he heard the gospel here in Adelaide. And he was here for seven months learning what the Lord had to teach him. It was all brand new to him. And he had to make a decision, do I go back to China? He did not want to go back to China. (laughs) And uh, he was uh, happy on his bike, travelling from one nation to another. And eventually the conviction in him about what life was really all about and what God wanted of him, and his mother was interested in the gospel back in China. And one day he came to it and he sold his bike and he bought a Bible and a guitar. And he went back to China and his mother got saved. And he now has a group of people over there. He wasn't happy when he first arrived. He uh, he um, he rang up from a taxi and he said, the guy's being impossible to me. He said, I didn't want to be back here. <laughs> and uh, he was sort of not enjoying the first moments, but he saw it through and now he has many happy stories of what the Lord has done for him while he's there. We were... I might just finish in one more scripture. I haven't reached an hour and a half yet. Acts 26. Just thinking of a couple of other people that sort of stand out in my mind for for this type of uh, topic. Um, in Indonesia, in Bali, there are two sisters there uh, in a family, uh, Marissa and Elsa. And both of them, uh, when they came to the Lord, had boyfriends uh, that weren't interested in the gospel. And um, they uh, they were patient with them and hoping that they would sort of make the move. And eventually Marissa said to William and Elsa said to Teddy, if you two don't make a move towards the Lord, don't think about marriage. It's not happening. And they they had strength. And both of their men came to the Lord and have really served the Lord with a whole heart. It doesn't always work out that way, but but good on them for their their courage. Um, In Acts 26, Paul stands before a king. He's being questioned. In verse 27, um, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. In fact, in verse 26 we might read as well, For the king knoweth of these things before whom I also speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. In verse 28, Then Agrippa said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Conviction? Yes. Action? No. Which sort of person are we? You know, if Jesus was standing in front of us today, and he is. He is here. He knows our heart. He knows our life. He knows the hardships. He knows the the things we've been through in life, the good things. 
but he still says, like he did to the rich man, are you willing to give some things up so that you might make it into heaven? Or are you just for this life? And then pushing up daisies afterwards. And then the judgment. Which which way would we have it? It's a wonderful life to be in the Lord, but it takes some courage. It takes some belief. And even in those things, the Lord gives us more than we have. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we might have this much faith or this much faith, and then he gives us this much faith. He even makes that part easier for us so that we can start to believe things that we couldn't believe before and see things that we couldn't see before. So um, God bless you. I hope you have the courage and the conviction. Amen. Amen.